This is Ye Old Dragons Library, the storytelling podcast. Here in Season 3, we're featuring the steampunk series, Guardians of the Time Stream. This is a chapter from the prequel story, Odessa Fremont. Ready for fun with fantastical fiction? Then let's begin. Chapter 1 Virginia, 1870 At age 14, Odessa Fremont knew that while she had a talent for burglary, that was not her chosen occupation at any time, either in the present or the future. However, she found exceeding satisfaction in her present position, hanging upside down outside the window of the headmistress's office at nearly one in the morning, supported by a series of pulleys and sailor's knots attached to the clockwork winder her grandmother Matilda had invented. Grandfather Ernest had given her the pulleys to play with and exercise her mind just before he and Granny left for a two-year archaeological expedition in South America. The nearly slick, thin but tough rope that supported her had been a gift from her brother Ulysses, six years her elder, just before he vanished. S. found some poetic justice and equilibrium in using the equipment, especially since she had managed to keep it hidden from Miss Van Hastings' periodic searches of the belongings of all her students for unladylike possessions supportive of unladylike actions and unladylike mindsets. While the headmistress waged a war against her students possessing secrets, S. had come to realize Miss Van Hastings did not reciprocate. The woman was hiding something from her. Letters from her grandparents came every other month, regular as clockwork, thanks to the relay systems of dirigibles that were allegedly immune to the various political currents that shifted borders in South America with the seasons. The next packet of reports, amusing anecdotes, and sketches of jungles, natives, and ruins was overdue by more than three weeks. That was the first clue. The second was that when S. tried to speak with Miss Van Hastings, the woman fled whenever she saw her coming. Highly unusual, because from the day S. had entered the Van Hastings Select Young Ladies Academy, the headmistress had felt compelled to criticize and remake her on a daily basis. Up until eight days ago, when all instructions for S. became the responsibility of the more restrictive members of the faculty. The third and most important clue S. had glimpsed the seal of her grandparents' lawyer's firm on a special packet that arrived three days ago, hand-delivered by a courier riding in the newest model of steam-powered cart. The vibrant royal blue wax was unmistakable. The image imprinted on the wax sealing the packet was large enough to make out the pyramid, scales of justice, and garland of lotus flowers circling the seal, just like the lotus tattooed on the outside of her right ankle. Masters Endicott, Lewis, and MacDonald had offices for their law firm in six states of the Union. The closest was in New York, necessitating a trip of several days by stagecoach or else an expensive one-day trip by airship, or two days by train, to Miss Van Hastings' boarding school in northern Virginia. If her grandparents' lawyers were here in town, or her grandparents had sent her to a boarding school in New York or Cleveland, or another town where the law firm had offices, they could have come themselves to see her rather than relying on a courier. Or, much more fun for her, 
Fs could have crept off the school grounds in disguise and walked across town to see them. Mr. Lewis, at least, would have laughed at her disguise. He was the youngest and the least stuffy of the three lawyers, though she considered all three friendly. So, three days now since the packet had come, and Miss Van Hastings certainly acted guilty. S. considered it highly reasonable to wait three days for the woman to confess her perfidy in hiding communication that only logically had to do with S. She now had every right to take matters, and the lawyer's letter, into her own hands. Two rooms away, inside the house, a door slammed, and the thin ribbon of light visible under the door vanished. Miss Van Hastings' house was the most drafty S. had ever had the misfortune to occupy. That meant anyone awake and with a candle had gone far enough away from the headmistress's office that they wouldn't hear S. moving around on those creaky floors. She was sure now that the dreadful woman wasn't the miser the other students accused her of being, refusing to bring in a good carpenter to fix the creaks and squeaks. The common consensus was that there were some spots in the floors all through the house that could snap any day now and send students and servants falling to the floor below. No, Miss Van Hastings kept her floors creaky and loud to let her track the movements of her students and servants. People who don't trust are most often the least trustworthy in their turn, S. whispered, repeating one of her grandmother's many axioms. She swallowed down the thread of a knot in her throat, part of the ache that had taken root in her body in multiple places, ever since her grandparents dropped her here at the Select Young Ladies Academy. How she wished she could hear her grandmother say those words, followed by a wink and a chuckle and a gesture from Granny to lean closer so they could confer privately over how to deal with the trustless people in question. S. twisted her right foot around inside the loops, securely holding her in place outside the second-story window, and tapped the lever controlling the pulley. It let her down ten more inches before the automatic stop clicked into place. She grinned at this proof that her engineering and calculating skills hadn't atrophied, despite the teacher's insistence that ladies of high breeding did not sully their minds with masculine activities, such as mathematics any more complex than dealing with the household account books. Even those activities were to be avoided, if at all possible, and left in the hands of a husband, father, or household steward. S. reached for the windowsill of the headmistress's office, made sure her grasp was secure, then tapped the lever again. Her arms ached a little as she supported her weight and pulled herself up onto the ledge while the rope and pulleys lowered her again, proof she needed to find some way to resume her physical toning exercises, despite being unladylike. In moments, she had the sash pushed up, proving what she always suspected about the headmistress's priorities in her household. No locks on the windows on the second floor. After all, every student at the Select Young Ladies Academy believed herself too delicate to climb or, heaven forbid, actually jump from a window. She dealt with the trap of the creaking floors by climbing onto the sideboard, kept in front of the wide windows of the office, and walking on it to the tall chest of drawers to the right. Her feet were clad in slippers such as circus acrobats wore, another gift from Muley, and made for silent creeping and leaving no discernible footprints. S. braced her toes on the drawer pulls of the chest, moving quickly in case the furniture here was just as cheaply made as other items in the academy buildings. From the chest, she stretched her leg to find secure footing on the desk chair, 
then slid down into the seat to kneel and lean over the vast desk. Just as she thought, the chair sat on a platform eight inches high to allow the headmistress to seem even taller to those brought to stand before her massive desk, easily eight feet wide. From her pocket, S. brought two glass vials wrapped in cotton wool. One had an eyedropper as the lid, and the other had a rubber gasket. She used the eyedropper to insert liquid from the first vial into the second, then shook the second until it released a soft greenish glow. The phosphorescent light would last exactly ten minutes, and S. gave herself that much time to find the packet and discern what Endicott, Lewis, and MacDonald wanted and why Miss Van Hastings kept that communication from her. Silly old goose, she muttered, finding the packet on the right of the massive desk blotter, with the blue seal carefully peeled off whole. On the right side of the blotter sat the letter in Mr. MacDonald's distinctive blocky handwriting, and directly in the middle of the blotter, an unfinished letter in Miss Van Hastings' loops and curlicues. When are you going to learn that if you tell everyone to stay out, everyone will try to get in, she muttered. Then S. smiled grimly and picked up her lawyer's letter. It was two pages, unnaturally short for most lawyers, but her grandparents admired Endicott, Lewis, and MacDonald for their ability to communicate clearly, concisely, and in plain English. S. paused, her hand shaking twice, when it occurred to her that two pages was a long letter indeed for these particular lawyers. Her hand shook a few more times after the first reading, then both hands shook when she read the letter a second and a third time, just to make sure she wasn't imagining it. Ernest and Matilda Fremont were missing in the jungles of South America, presumed dead. There was no telling how long this had been, because the latest courier dirigible had been delayed by another of those pesky revolutions that plagued the continent. This time, the rebels had wealthy backers who provided them with battle dirigibles, most likely Southern Army war surplus that should have been destroyed when Lee surrendered to Grant, allowing the war to take to the sky. They had no regard for scientific endeavors and shot down anything that came within 50 miles of contested territory. S. knew all this from previous letters, but she had assumed the courier airships, armed with the latest weaponry, including flamethrowers, were able to defend themselves. Grandfather Ernest had assured her nothing would get in the way of their regular communications. When the courier had arrived, the crew found the archaeologist's camp in disrepair, signs of depredation from animals and damage from weather, but no signs of attack. They had searched for four days before being forced to leave to avoid an air attack. Endicott, Lewis, and MacDonald apologized for the delay in sending the news to S. Knew it, she muttered. The packet was addressed to her, just like all the others, but Miss Van Hastings had diverted it. Considering how carefully the seal had been pried off, to make sure it was unbroken, S. considered now the chances were good that the headmistress had been opening, reading, and resealing all her mail before passing it to her. What were the chances she had confiscated drawings, and perhaps even small presents, such as dried plants or even animal fur or skins or teeth or bones, sent for scientific curiosity, but all considered unladylike by the interfering woman? The lawyers apologized for the delay in sending the news to S., but they had been busy asking for confirmation of the situation with the war and the diplomats assigned to the surrounding territories. 
They had been trying to learn about the weather and other information, to determine if perhaps the Fremonts and their associates had been forced to flee for their lives and were even now making their way back to the United States. They wished to make arrangements to meet with S., hopefully with good news or at least more certain information, and discuss with her the arrangements her grandparents had made in the eventuality of their disappearance or deaths. Would one month be too long a wait? If she needed to speak with them immediately, or at any time in the interim, she had only to send a courier by reverse charge mail, and one of them would come personally to meet with her. S. had a very good idea of what she would find when she picked up the unfinished letter. Miss Van Hastings had made it very clear how a gently raised young lady of high breeding should react in such distressing situations. During her second month at the Select Young Ladies' Academy, Lavinia Pickering's uncle had died, after years of convalescence from injuries suffered during the Civil War. Lavinia had avoided him whenever possible, and had loudly declared to all of her friends at the Academy that the world was a better place without the disgusting, sniveling, whining man who always smelled of camphor and whatever new patent medicine was being peddled by snake oil salesmen. Miss Van Hastings had roundly lectured Lavinia for her attitude, insisting that she was speaking from hysteria, that delicate young ladies couldn't bear the traumatic pain of losing a beloved family member. Then she sent Lavinia to her bed for an entire week, to allow her nerves time to recuperate. S. and several other girls agreed that it was Lavinia's expression of disgust for the resurrectionists, a group her uncle belonged to, trying to restart the Civil War, that actually prompted Miss Van Hastings to lecture her. Rumors said the headmistress's brother was the leader of the local resurrectionist group. Secret Service or other government agents came regular as clockwork, every eight weeks, to question her if she had seen her brother heard from him, or seen any of his known associates in the area. As S. suspected when she read through the letter to be sent to her lawyers, if her grandparents were presumed dead, that made Endicott, Lewis, and MacDonald her lawyers now, the headmistress apologized and described S.'s debilitating, nearly hysterical reaction to the news. According to Miss Van Hastings, S. had to be dosed with laudanum, She apologized in the most flowery language S. had ever read, as she explained that, "'Young Miss Fremont is in such agony over your news. She has begged me to stand as her intermediary and deal with you in her stead until she has regained her strength and her emotional poise.'" S. snorted, grinning at the thought of the reaction of the lawyers when they got the letter. None of them would believe it. They all had told S., at one time or another, that they considered her a most common-sense, balanced, and emotionally strong and stable young woman. In fact, they wished more young ladies they met could be like her. It would make dealing with estates and inheritance and bereavement so much less messy and wet for all of them. S. could imagine some of the pithy comments Mr. Lewis would make, perhaps even being so bold as to call Miss Van Hastings a bald-faced liar. Although, being a gentleman, he wouldn't say such words to the woman's face. We've come to a break in the story. I'd like to take a moment to tell you about a book that you might be interested in reading. This is your invitation to explore the Commonwealth Universe, the journey of a galaxy-spanning civilization, from its downfall into barbarism to its climb back to the stars. Dozens of worlds to explore and races to follow in the struggle for survival. From shapeshifters and immortals 
planet pirates and colonists, to heroes and explorers. There's bound to be a story you'll enjoy. Come explore this constantly growing universe of over 30 titles with more to come. From Michelle Levine and Writers Exchange. mlevine.com and writers-exchange.com And now, back to the story. Essa's inner time sense told her she had just over two minutes left to investigate the desk and its contents further. She found notes of things to say in the letter and several notes in a different, masculine handwriting, urging her to investigate all of that stupid girl's assets before convincing those interfering Yankees to hand over control. Those scraps and notes backed up the dozen or so different scenarios and reasons that S. imagined for why the headmistress hid the letter and lied to her lawyers. Premier among them was keeping S. as a student at the academy, to keep the fees for room, board, and tuition coming in. She didn't doubt the woman wanted to control her future. Several of S.'s schoolmates were witnesses with her just two months ago when Miss Foster of the Boston and Savannah Fosters had made a very advantageous marriage with a young German archduke only four steps away from the throne. They had overheard the headmistress congratulate herself on being instrumental in arranging the match and earning a large sum of money from the archduke's family and the Foster family for her services. S. didn't doubt the headmistress wanted to use every student at her school to increase the size of her bank account. I should have turned you in then, S. muttered, as she quickly put the desk back into the same configuration she had found it, while the last few seconds of light remained in the phosphorescent vial. Still, even if we had no proof, someone from the Secret Service would have come out and made life miserable for you. Even a minor flunky would have been satisfactory. She scanned the desk one last time, nodded in satisfaction, and began her climb back across the furniture to the window. The light from the vial faded quickly while she was still tiptoeing through the clutter on the sideboard. S focused on getting to the window and up to the attic, where she had stashed much of her scientific and rambling gear, as she termed her boy clothes and other unladylike paraphernalia, almost from the day she had arrived under Miss Van Hastings' roof. She estimated at least five more nights of visits to obtain all the information and proof she needed, who would give Janus and Benedict Arnold and Iago, combined, a run for their money. Once in the attic, she stashed her equipment behind the panels that hid it, on the off chance a servant actually came up to this dusty, dim room. S made a mental shopping list as she inventoried. It wouldn't do to remove the actual letters from and to the lawyers, so she needed to obtain some of the chemicals Granny used to create her copying paper. It was a bother and inconvenience that the copying paper had to be freshly made and couldn't be created in large quantities and kept on hand against need. However, S. knew where all the required ingredients were kept in the large, airy room that passed for a laboratory on the premises of the academy. Miss Van Hastings presented a facade of a well-rounded education for her young ladies, preparing them to take their place at the head of society. In reality... The fragments of chemistry, geology, cartography, and biology taught to the young ladies were only to give them a vocabulary to make their husbands and fathers look impressive. None of them were ever expected to put such knowledge to use. None of them were expected to manufacture gunpowder or repair a steam engine or sew a wound. 
For the sake of appearances, the laboratory classroom was kept fully stocked. S. made a wager with herself that she could take half of the chemicals and other supplies, and even some of the equipment, and no one would notice for a year or more. Copying paper, she muttered. Lots of it. Please, good Lord and Savior, help me find lots of evidence of the noxious Mr. Van Hastings' activities, so the Secret Service will cart him away once and for all. She would prefer the oily young man be locked in an iron box and tossed in the nearest river. Everyone in the school knew when he came to visit his sister, because there was always at least one housemaid with a bruised face or the signs of prolonged weeping. He always came wearing a false name and disguises. S. knew, just because she could see through his disguises, patently false beards, badly dyed hair, monocles, and even a ridiculously unworkable metal frame around one leg posing as a mechanical leg. That didn't mean her fellow students could as well. There was no proof, only speculation. It wasn't like she could carry a camera with her and take photographs for proof without being caught. Although, now that she thought of it, sketches might be of some help in tracking the odious man, if the authorities knew the various disguises he employed. She was rather good with sketching paper and pencils. Why hadn't she thought of that before? Other than the lack of need or motivation to take the Van Hastings down several notches, until now... Besides bringing down the nefarious, traitorous activities of Mr. Van Hastings, S. needed proof of all the lies the headmistress had been telling Endicott, Lewis, and MacDonald. She suspected the duplicitous woman had been lying to her lawyers from the beginning, trying to put a wedge between them and S. She paused in changing from her boy clothes to her nightgown robe and house slippers to mentally slap herself. After all, if she hadn't been so caught up in evading and deluding the woman's every attempt to influence her mind and actions, she might have wondered before now why one of her grandparents' lawyers hadn't come to visit her. S. wouldn't be surprised to learn that the headmistress had told them she was in a temper. Still, over being left in the United States while her grandparents went adventuring and refused to see them, considering them collaborators with her grandparents' decision. After all, S. had accompanied them on their previous trip to South America four years ago, so why couldn't she accompany them now, when she would have been of help in their scientific endeavors? This was an entirely too believable scenario, because she honestly had been angry with the family lawyers. They had helped her grandparents in the choice of where to leave her behind, after all. "'You are a fool, Odessa Fremont,' she whispered, as she slipped down the dark corridor to the stairs." The situation has changed to something far more serious and dangerous than anything Mama and Papa faced before they died. Act like it. There was no one to stand between you and the cruel world. In that moment, she made freedom from Miss Van Hastings and her select young ladies' academy her ultimate goal. Granted, the side benefits were delightful. Aiding the United States government in finally tracking down and capturing the vile resurrectionist leader— Walter Van Hastings, exposing Miss Van Hastings' scheming, money-grubbing, politically pandering ways, the delicious freedom to spend the next year or two, or however long it took to make her way to South America and search for her grandparents, wearing trousers and pretending to be a boy. It won't do to have anything planned beyond that, however, S. murmured when she reached her room. She slid the mannequin made of flesh-toned bladders with a dark wig and dressed in her least favorite nightgown, out of her sheets and under her bed. Like Granny says, always plan five steps ahead of any situation and any anticipated contingency. 
She took another set of vials from the compartment she had hollowed out of the frame of her bed and made enough of the phosphorescent liquid to give herself twenty minutes of light. Using the candle beside the bed would have been easier, but there was the smell of melted wax and a recently doused wick to contend with if someone were to come checking beds. Every once in a while, when the head housekeeper was in a foul mood, the sour-voiced skeletal woman would ration candles. She would actually measure the height of each student's candle and accuse them of staying up past the permitted hour of the night. Even the excuse of needing to get in extra study wouldn't protect them from the scolding and confiscation of sweets or presents from families or sweethearts. S. didn't care about such punishments, but she did want to avoid any notice from the housekeeper. Besides, using the phosphorescent liquid reminded her of her childhood, when all learning had been an adventure and not something regimented and turned boring and useless. S. made notes in the secret cipher Grandfather Ernest had taught her, a combination of cuneiform and hieroglyphics, planning out all the things she would like to do and needed to do to ensure her safety. Once she levied punishment against the Van Hastings siblings and escaped this prison masquerading as a school, the exercise was so delightful, she nearly cried aloud in disappointment when the light flickered and she had to put her secret journal and the vials away and climb into bed. S. lay awake past the chiming of 2 a.m. from the hallway clock, plotting adventures. She would obtain passage by steamship to South America, then assemble a team of guides, porters, and guards to get her through the jungle. Or should she try to stow away on the courier dirigible? That would be an adventure all in itself, calculating how much she needed in the way of provisions. Somewhere between 2 and 2.30, her planning turned into a dream. She found her grandparents in a subterranean kingdom where the people ate luminescent fungi and glowed in the dark. Then her brother, Ulysses, arrived at the head of an entire regiment of officers from the United States Air Corps in their dashing gray-blue uniforms. We're already at the end of today's chapter. I hope you enjoyed yourself and you're eagerly looking forward to the next episode of Ye Old Dragons Library.